as we begin reading in Genesis 29, we're at a point where Jacob, you remember, kind of swindled his brother out of his birthright, and unnecessarily so because God had already told Jacob's mom before he was born that it was the younger that was going to have the blessing. But Jacob kind of took matters into his own hands, always a mistake. And so it ends up that as Isaac's going to die soon, Esau, his brother that was swindled out of the blessing, decides that he's going to kill Jacob after his father passes away. His mother hears about it and gets Jacob sent to her to her brother's house, Laban's. And so Jacob goes, and when he gets there, kind of similar to Isaac, he comes across Rachel out by a well. And so he meets Rachel, and she takes him home to meet the, her father, and he starts working for Laban. And that's kind of where we pick up. In Genesis chapter 29 and verse 15, it says, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall be your wages. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was a beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, that's quite a, I don't know what the average dowry was back then in this place, but when you think about that, seven years' wages, calculate that out to, well, maybe what our wages are, that's quite a price. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any of the other men. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. And what that's talking about is their wedding celebration. Our wedding celebrations last about 45 minutes, then you go into a celebration of the reception. It lasts a few hours, and then they're off on their honeymoon. Well, back in these days, the wedding celebration was a feast that lasted like seven days so her father's telling jacob complete the marriage process and then you can have her younger sister as well jacob did so and completed her week then laban gave him his daughter rachel to be his wife laban gave his female servant bilhah to his daughter rachel to be her servant so jacob went into rachel also and he loved rachel more than leah and served laban for another seven years when the lord saw that leah was hated he opened her womb but rachel was barren And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. And each of the names that we find them naming the children during this time, there's a play on words. Reuben's name means to see. And she says, The Lord looked on my affliction. And we won't take the time to go specifically with each of them are, but it's good to know that each name represents her experience at the time. In verse 33, it says, She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. 
And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go in to her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went in to her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Then Leah, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. And God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. I remember when I was in college, some of our professors put together a list of books that they appreciated from their readings over the years. And one of the books that one of my professors put on there was called Formula for Family Unity. I think it was written by Les Olala. So I went and bought that book, Formula for Family Unity. My family was young at the time, and there was a lot of good biblical principles within that book that applied very well to my family. Now, the the reason that I mentioned that this morning is not because that's what I see happening in Genesis chapters 29 and 30. In fact, it just stood out so prominent to me that it seems like that's the opposite of what's happening in Genesis chapters 29 and 30. If I was to label this anyway, which I have, I would call this a formula for family disunity. If you want to invite problems into your family and into your life, Jacob knows how to do it. The things that we're seeing within this, and not all of them were Jacob's choice. Some of them were what he was tricked into or what Laban brought into the equation as well. But when we look through the situation in here, there are some things to be learned. Now, some of them, I think, don't necessarily go along with our culture, and so maybe we don't need to learn them. Like, for example, if you wake up one morning and find that you're married to the wrong girl, I don't think throwing her sister in the mix is the answer to the equation. And uh, I don't think any of us would think that it would. 
a little bit different than that culture at that time. But you know what? There are some principles that we gain from these passages. Not all the lessons that we learned are learned by positive examples. Some are learned by negative ones. You know, I remember when I was raising my children, and especially as they come up into the teenage years, I was always weighing which things to share from them for my life. Because in, in my life, and the mistakes that I made in my life, I didn't want them making the same mistakes. And you know, as a parent, you wrestle with those kinds of things. Do I want my kid to find out about that in my life? Because then do they look at me as hypocritical because I'm telling them to do the opposite? Or is it a benefit to them if they get to understand my struggles? And so I know when I parented my kids, some of my struggles I shared with them if I felt that they were having a struggle with a similar thing and that it would be helpful for them. Other things I kept private from them. I kept away from them. And young people, by the way, if you think what my parent is telling me is different from what they did as a young person, so that's hypocritical, it's not hypocritical. What they want you to do is learn from their mistakes as well as their successes. Learn from our failures as well, young people. The reason I say that is because when I look at this mess, I see a lot of this mess that Jacob didn't learn from the failures of his ancestors. Jacob ends up going into the servants of his wives to have children as an answer to barrenness. Remember that happened? Abraham. Abraham and Sarah weren't having a child. Sarah said, why don't you take my servant? It was a custom of their culture. Just because it's a custom of the culture doesn't mean it's right. Abraham goes into her servant Hagar, and what does it cause? All kinds of problems. They end up having a child, Ishmael. Ishmael's not the chosen child, so he's rejected by God. It causes all kinds of problems between Sarah and Hagar, Sarah and Abraham, all kinds of family problems. Do you think that Jacob doesn't know about Uncle Ishmael? Esau married one of Ishmael's daughters. He knows about Uncle Ishmael. If Moses knows enough to write about it 500 years later, Jacob knows enough about it since Ishmael was his uncle. But what does Jacob do? Jacob does the same thing Abraham did. Abraham made a mistake. Jacob will compound that mistake. Abraham ended up with two wives in the mixture with two kids. Jacob will end up with four wives, 12 kids. And can you imagine the family problems that that's going to create? As later, some of the children will conspire against another one to kill them. Then they decide, oh, let's not kill them. Let's just make a profit on them. Sold them into slavery. And one thing after another. Look at the problems that we just read within here. This is crazy. He marries one gal, tricked by the father-in-law, marries the sister. What kind of problems are you going to have in that situation? The envy and the rivalry between the two sisters will be compounded by the rivalry between the servants and even more than that between the children. As the children will be, will be rivaling for the affections of the parents as well and who is prominent within the family relationship. Man, it's horrible. All right, so what do we get out of this passage? I think we've got to look at this passage in three different ways. I think we have to look at it, one, um, we've got to look at it through the eyes of Moses, who's writing it. Moses is leading the children of Israel later in history. He's leading the descendants of these people into the promised land and out of Egypt. What is Moses' purpose in writing in this? Moses' purpose in writing this is he's given the people their heritage. Look, God gave this covenant to Abraham. He made that promise to Abraham. He made this people, Abraham's family, the covenant family, the special family. We see God fulfilling his covenant to Abraham in providing this family for Abraham that would be as innumerable as the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky, would turn him into a great people. It's going to start with Jacob. 
Jacob's going to have 12 sons, which are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's a little bit of national history for them. When we were kids growing up in school, what did we learn? We learned U.S. history. And I grew up in Washington State, and you know what I learned? Washington State history. Well, that's what we're looking at as we see this come about in Genesis is we're learning about their history. Eventually in our nation, we came to 50 states. Israel is made up of 12 tribes. And why are they made up of 12 tribes? Because Jacob had 12 sons. And so we're seeing the founding of this nation that God would, in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. And Isaac, even when he tells Jacob to go to Laban, he says, go to Laban and then dwell in the land that God gave to Abraham. It's going to you. And so he's following that covenant. And so we see Moses' purposes in writing this. But we also see a larger picture, a larger narrative. Because God, in doing this, has a bigger picture in mind. He, he hinted at it with Abraham. He said, through you, all the world's going to be blessed. And we see that happening later on through the descendants of Abraham, the person of Jesus Christ, being born a child of God, a child of Abraham, and he would be the salvation that would be provided for the world as God would reach out to the world through the descendants of Abraham. And so we see this larger narrative, this bigger, this meta-narrative through the Bible that's constantly there, that is constantly focused on Jesus Christ, that's pointed toward this descendant of Abraham that's going to be born, and he's going to be the Savior of the world. God's going to reach out to the world through him. But then also, there's something to learn from the mistakes that these people made as well. Because in seeing the mistakes that they made and the consequences that come through those mistakes, we can learn from history and not make those same mistakes. As the old saying goes, he who does not learn from history is destined to repeat it. As we consider that formula for family disunity and try to stay away from it, we want to try to avoid the pitfalls that we see happening in the life of Jacob. Well, the principles that we find in doing that, I think, are fourfold. The first that we want to focus on is a little bit of a warning as we go in to deal with it. And that is that we need to exercise humility as we look at history and culture. But when I look at the things that are happening here, I think what foolishness that a guy would find himself married to the wrong girl to begin with. But secondly, when he does find himself married to her, that that's the reasonable answer. I'll just take her sister too. And I look at those things and I think, boy, that is crazy. But you know what? The fact of the matter is they were, that was the accepted norm in their culture. Not necessarily that it was a great idea to marry two sisters, but when they came to handing off their servants, here, go into her so that I can have a child through her so that we don't, and that child would be considered the, the wife's child. That was a custom of the time. Doesn't make it a right custom. Just because something's cultural doesn't mean we should participate in it. But, that's what they give themselves in, into. And you know what? As we look at it, we look at some of the same mistakes we see in Abraham's life, we see in his descendants' life. They're not learning from history. And we need to be able to do that. But at the same time, we need to approach it with humility. Whether you're studying human history, church history, your own family history, what family doesn't have some skeletons in the closet? I know in my family, you look back a little bit, my grandparents were Mormon. My great-grandparents, my grandpa had two wives at the same time, polygamy. Two wives, 20 kids. One wife had eight kids. One wife had 12 kids. When the government started putting a little pressure on them for doing that, he took the one with eight kids, sent them to Mexico for a while to, so that they could kind of fly under the radar. That's one of the things in my family. And you know, the fact of the matter is we start looking within our families, our extended families. We don't even have to go back into the dead of our family to find 
these things that we're maybe not too proud of. But you know what? That's exactly the point. As we look at this, we see that people are people. We see that they're weak. But you know what? At the same time that they had their frailties, they were honored for their strengths and they are honored for their faith as they followed God also. You know, one of the things that I'm seeing in our culture today is a lack of humility when it comes to looking at history. We look back and we judge history severely and harshly at times because we judge them by our standards today. Like, for example, I think of the things that have been, happened more recently. Our, our forefathers of our country have been torn down and they want to tear down monuments and they want to try to erase the impact that they've had on our nation. But many of our forefathers had a great impact on our nation, but some of them have been slave owners. Now, I think we all would acknowledge that slavery, and especially the form that it was in within our country, was horrific. And I'm very glad to have that be a thing of the past. And the segregation, I'm very glad to have that be a thing of the past. And I hate that, that any people group would see themselves as superior to the point where they would treat other people as property. But you know what? At the same time, those same forefathers accomplished a lot of good things. If we look back at the things that happened in our forefathers' lives and judge them too harshly, I think we're just opening a door that we might not want open. Because what's going to happen with our grandkids and our great-grandkids as they look into our lives and find things that were distasteful to them? Then will we be judged as harshly? The fact of the matter is we probably don't have all of our ducks in a row quite as much as we'd like to hope that we do. And so coming generations may judge us a little bit severely as well. But you know what? That's one of the things that I see within this passage. We're seeing that Israel is being pointed to, look, this is your forefather. Jacob is the man whose name will be changed to Israel and becomes the name of the country. And we look in Jacob's life and we find some things that are distasteful. We find some things that are foolish. But you know what? Jacob is still honored as our forefather. He's still held up. They're not tearing down his monuments. They're not erasing his name. Let's rename the country as something else because we don't want it named after him. They're not, they're not going through all that. In fact, throughout the Bible, you'll find him honored. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 16, as God's talking to Moses, he says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So God identifies himself with Jacob and with Abraham and with Isaac, as he had defines himself before Moses. In Psalm 81 and verse 1, The Psalter would sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. And these are not isolated incidences, by the way. If you look it up, you can find a lot of references like this where God is recognized as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Jesus also would refer to God as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. In Acts chapter 3, we find the apostles doing the same thing. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus. And so when you, when you look at it, these people, they had a humility toward the past. Even though Jacob definitely did some things wrong, he made his blunders. Abraham made his mistakes. Isaac made his mistakes. They were still honored for the things, the way that God used them and the things that God fulfilled in their life. All through the Bible, all of our heroes have chinks in the armor. They all have weaknesses. They all have places where they fell. And you know what? Thank God for that because I have chinks in my armor and I have my weaknesses and I have my place where I fall. And you know what? I know that God can still do great things even in the midst of our weakness. I'm hard-pressed as I read through this passage. I'm hard-pressed to find a good thing that Jacob did in here. 
But God still was gracious. And he still fulfilled his covenant that would go through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. God still acted in their behalf. I think there's two things that we have to have firmly in place in our mind to have that kind of humility as we look back over our history. One is the acknowledging of divine sovereignty. We need to acknowledge that God is in control. God is still working his plans. He's still taking care of his business, fulfilling his promise to Abraham, even though even though he's working with frail people. And that's the second part of it, acknowledging human frailty. Jacob's frailty is not just Jacob's frailty. It's an example of human frailty. And that human frailty we all participate in. And so we recognize that down through the ages as God is fulfilling his plan, people are always failing God. Look at Israel's history. They constantly wandered off into other gods. They constantly drifted away from God. I don't know how many times I've sang that hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Have you experienced that? I don't know how many times I've sang that part of that song and felt it. Thank God there's something in my sinful flesh that just pulls me away from you. And that's what we are. We're, we're frail in that way. And that's why it has to be the grace of God. It has to all be on the grace of God who fulfills His covenant to us. Because we slip, we fall, we stumble. We're frail. He's strong. We need to acknowledge that human frailty. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says that that human frailty that we see in others, we should learn from. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. In 1 Corinthians, it does the same thing. It gives a few examples. It says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. You see what he's telling us is that if we recognize that human frailty in our ancestors, we need to learn from it so that we don't make the same mistakes. And as we do that, as we look within the passage, we can see there is a few places where they made mistakes. And the lessons that we would learn from them, I would say, are these. First of all, we need to stay in the lines. We need to recognize God's boundaries. You know, it's kind of like a color sheet. A color sheet has all these lines, their boundaries. And you, you pick the colors, but you color here, you color there, but you're supposed to stay inside the lines. In the end, you have a beautiful picture. Well, it's the same with God. God has given us boundaries for our life. We follow God's boundaries for our life, His righteous principles, and in the end, we have a beautiful life. Every time we go outside the boundaries, it's one more little bit of ugliness in our life. And as we consider that idea, that's exactly what we look at because what's Jacob doing in some of these? He's going outside of God's boundaries. Remember, God's boundaries for marriage were given to us all the way back at the very beginning of Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. Jacob's got now four women that are illustrating becoming one with him. And he's gone outside of God's boundaries. And when he goes outside of God's boundaries like that, it begins to get ugly. And that's, that's exactly what happened. As I read through that account of his life, boy, that's like a nightmare. Four different women and they're not, none of them are content because, oh, that one's having kids and I want to have kids and that one's having... And then, the, oh man, I just can't even imagine. And this one, give me some mandrakes. Oh, you can have him if you... If you give me some of your mandrakes and you're coming home from work and you get told in what all the scuffle's about and you're coming with me tonight and, oh boy, 
No, thank you. Didn't stay inside the lines. He saw. He had to know where Abraham went outside the lines and all the problems that that caused. He had to know the family history, but he still went outside the lines. God gives us his boundaries and his biblical principles for a reason. We stay inside of God's boundaries, and it's better there. That's where we experience the blessing of God in our lives. Well, not only that, one thing we need to avoid is envy. We see there's a lot of envy going on within here. Leah is envious of Rachel. Why? Because Jacob loves her, and he doesn't love Leah. Rachel is envious of Leah. Why? Because she's having children, and she's not able to have children. And there's this animosity. They even name their children after it. It gets kind of morbid. She names her kid Naphtali because I've wrestled against my sister and I've prevailed. Named her kid after the squabble between her and her sister. That's sad. That envy can become a bitterness with inside of you and it can eat you up. The Bible warns us frequently against envy. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy is within that list of things that people who don't inherit the kingdom of God participate in. But it's a thing that is contradiction for those who believe in Christ to exercise envy in their lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what's called the love chapter, it says in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It doesn't envy. When we find ourselves envying somebody else for their position or their what they have or whatever their experience is, we are in a bad spot. We need to cast out all envy. We need to be able to be happy for people that are getting some level of blessing that maybe we don't get, that we're not experiencing at the moment. We need to be happy when we're in a time of suffering. For We need to be happy for other people that are going through a time of blessing. We need to dodge envying at a great cost. And then lastly, I'd put, do not try to solve relational problems with tangible solutions. But what do we see happening is we see a couple women that are envious of one another. They've got relational problems within their relationship with each other. These women have relational problems within their relationship with their husband. And there's a lot of accusations going back and forth whose fault this is. Jacob says, it's not my fault. <laughs> Go talk to God. You know, that's a step down, actually. When you think of his dad, Isaac, Isaac went and prayed for Rebekah. And she conceived and had a child. Jacob didn't pray for Rachel. He told her, look, it's between you and God. Don't ask me. That's not my fault. But there's a lot of blame shifting going on. And there's a lot of strife within the relationships in the family at this time. And what do they lean on to solve the problem? A baby. How many times do we try to patch up relational problems with tangible things you can feel? Oh, I'm not happy. So a new house, a new baby, a new car a new, new furniture, a new, 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 a change. You see, that's what they're doing. What does Leah name her kids? Some of the names of her kids. Now my husband's going to love me because I've provided him three children. Now my husband's going to honor me because I've given him six sons. This isn't just in their day. I've heard of this in my days, haven't you? People going through some marriage problems, some tough roads, some bumpy roads, and oh, there's a new baby. Going through marriage trouble, oh, there's a new home. Oh, there's a new car. Oh, there's a... They're distractions. We need to deal with the problem. We need to hit it face on, head on. That's how you deal with relational problems, not 
in this way. So as we look at this passage and we deal with it here, we want our families not to be disunified. We want them to be unified. How does that happen? The things that we learn from this passage are several. We learn that, one, our forefathers, even though they've made their mistakes, can be honored by us. And we should look up to them for their accomplishments and be grateful for the roads that they've paved to get us to where we are. If I was born into the culture that my forefathers were, I don't know if I would have seen it any different than they did. I might have made the same mistakes. But you know what? Thankfully, their impact ended up leading to the culture that we're in so that we can make the decisions that we get to make. So we need to, with humility, look at the past and recognize that the real hero is God. And He's carrying out His covenant with us, providing the salvation that He promised to Abraham. He would provide in His Son, Jesus Christ, when that day would get here. But then also, as we learn from their mistakes, we need to stay within the lines. We need to enjoy life within God's boundaries. That is where it is most enjoyable. We need to avoid envy in our life that those problems in our relationships would spring up and become greater problems. And we need to not try to handle relational issues with tangible uh, solutions. We need to face those with real solutions by exercising grace and humility in our relationships with one another.